Welcome and thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. I'm Michal Mahuna. Check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website on www.thehealthzoneshow.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Hellstone Show delivered to your inbox every week, and also you'll get a copy of our free ebook called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show, or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehellstoneshow.com. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Steve Peters, who works as a sports psychiatrist. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. So tell me a little about yourself, Steve. I'm a psychiatrist by trade. Uh, I trained as a doctor, uh, worked in hospital medicine in the National Health Service for uh, just over 20 years as a consultant psychiatrist, and then moved into sport just uh, by chance. Um, This started in 2001, and then I went full-time in 2005. Uh, Initially, I worked at the British cycling team up to the London Olympics, and, and, and obviously previous to that, the Beijing and the Athens Olympics. Um, and since then, I've worked with about 15 to 20 um, national sports. And currently, I'm working with Liverpool Football Club, uh, England Football, and Team Sky, the cycling team. I know you're the most well-known for being the author of the best-selling mind management book called The Chimp Paradox, and also the creator of the Chimp Model. Like, could you explain to our listeners, uh, Steve? Like, what is the Chimp? Okay, it's a really the model itself was brought in to make life easy to understand what's happening inside our heads. As a clinical doctor in hospital, often people came in and they weren't ill. Some people obviously need medication if they've got depressions and so on. But a lot of people came in and they were just not clear about how they wanted to live their life or they weren't dealing well with problems or they weren't dealing well with emotions or thinking or behaviours. So, And I was saying these things we can manage by skill. We don't need medication for these. Um, but to do that, it's quite complex, the mind. So I said, well, if you look at the mind, you've basically got three systems fighting to control you, and that is you yourself with your values and ideas, which I call the human in you. Then you've got this primitive drives, which also think for us and have their own agenda. So that I call the chimp. And then finally you have a third system, the computer, which is our automatic behaviors and beliefs, which the other two systems input. So giving a very simple example, I always use food because I think food is the one most people relate to. It's the chimp um, in us that destroys what we want to do. We say things like, I'm going to eat the right amount of food, I'm going to eat sensibly, I'm not going to overindulge, and then the chimp comes in and says, I'm having none of that, I'm going to eat impulsively, I'm going to eat as and when I want, and then we're left to pick up this feeling of regret and thinking, yet again, I've managed to overeat or not eat sensibly. And Steve, like, how does your model, say, help people performing to deal with stresses of trying to achieve a goal? Again, it's, if you take a typical um, person that I might work with in sport, what commonly people experience, which is natural and healthy but very unhelpful, then in the dressing room when they're waiting to go out and compete, uh, and what they as a human would want was just to be calm and collected, knowing that that brings out the best in them. Whereas what our chimp brain will be doing was panicking and saying, this is going to be an all or nothing event. It will weigh me up. People will be judging me. I'm terrified of failing. And most people would say, I don't, I don't welcome these feelings at all. They're quite destructive to my performance in sport. I need to focus on the process and just concentrate on what I want to do and enjoy it. So what I'm trying to say to them is it's a skill base that I teach, not technique. Um, 
it's where you recognize which part of your brain has got the blood supply and the oxygen uptake and you learn to move that so that you start operating from the part of the brain and the system that you want to work with. So it's a case of learning what your chimp is like, what your brain is doing and what works for you. It's very individual, it's very unique. So I don't come in with answers. What I do is ask the person to sit with me and we discuss and look at what their mind is doing and work out for their individual unique mind what will work for them. So I work as a team with the person. And what do you think is the number one reason why people don't achieve their goals, Steve? I think it's that we don't recognise we're being hijacked by part of our brain that's trying to help us but really isn't appropriate for situations we're in. And if we can recognise that is not us at all and distinguish ourselves from that part of the brain, which is automatic, um, then I think people can start to recognise their own potential and who they really are as opposed to muddling themselves up with a machine that's imposing these feelings and thoughts on them. And when you've been sabotaged by your own chimp, how do you get back in action again? Or? There's various ways. So, for example, if it's something really stressful, it may be that you have to work with emotion. And the best way sometimes is to let the chimp out, actually safely exercise it. So get all your feelings outside so that ex express them, don't suppress anything, which we know is a common uh, theme across all therapies for the last 50 years. And I'm saying that this makes sense from my perspective coming as a sort of neuroscientist and doctor to say that if you try and squash an emotion, it, it doesn't do you any favours because it seems to come out in other directions and other ways in your life. So the first um, way you deal with it, an agitated chimp is to try and express it and let it out. And often, and most of us have a common experience, that as we express what we feel and think, suddenly we gain perspective, which is what the brain will do, as our human brain will pick up and say, this is really an overreaction or this is being silly. So that's a simple way of just saying, let's uh, deal with it in a constructive way rather than not have a plan and then find that we do uh, deal with emotion di in, in a difficult way that actually ends up with us underperforming. And can your method be like, as successfully applied to business or personal growth as it is to sports? Yes, I mean, I run a non-for-profit company um, because when I was going to retire after London, um, a number of the people I worked with who were sports psychologists and psychologists uh, asked me to form a company, and I agreed to do it as a public service. So we work with uh, a number of businesses, corporate work, we work in health, we work with the public on, on anything they bring to us to help them to get the best out of themselves and other people. We also work in schools with education, and still, of course, I'm still in sport. So we cover a variety of areas. Uh, and, of course, what we're saying with the model is it's learning what's in your head and how to use that that's important. And if you get some insights and understanding into yourself, then it doesn't matter where you apply it, you're more likely, your probability of success is likely to rise, whether it's business or personal stuff, quality of life goes up. And I know you talk about beliefs and truths, Steve. Are there any beliefs and truths which would be particularly useful to adopt to help a person to live a, like, a healthier and happier life? Yeah, I think from my point of view, you have to work your own truths out. It sounds a bit bizarre, but if, for example, one of my truths is life is not fair, which means when it is unfair, then I don't get annoyed or upset. I accept that that is the way life is. Sometimes it does not go the way we want it to, and the answer is I must accept that and then start working forward. Uh, it doesn't mean you roll over with everything, but it means you ha have to accept things don't always work out. Um, so that's a truth for me. And if I implement that, then it's less likely I'll find frustration or anger or upset. Uh, again, I, there's no guarantees in life. You know, things change and we, we shouldn't um, bank our, build ourselves a world on guarantees that are not actually given. 
uh, people often do that or they have unrealistic expectations of themselves in particular. So I see a lot of people who beat themselves up. Whereas again, one of my truths is in life, all you could ever do is your best. And if you've done that, then you should be complimenting yourself and proud of yourself and not beating yourself up because you didn't make a certain standard or you made errors. You know, if they're not deliberately intentional, then why would you uh, attack yourself and start being self-deprecating? At the moment, Steve, I have a friend who got back into fitness. He's run and swim consistently for over 10 weeks. However, he's done nothing for nearly three weeks now, and he's finding it very hard to get back into it. Is there a tool or a method which he could use to kind of turn around again? Or Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a good example where he will sit there, and I, I guess if I met your friend, he'd be saying to me, I just can't understand it because I really want to do this, so he's human, he's talking. And the chimp is saying, no, and it'll make excuses. It'll say, let's run twice as far tomorrow, let's leave it. And it'll do all that it wants to stop you. Uh, and what you have to do is recognize this is the chimp imposing its own agenda and will, which is let's take life easy to the point where it's not actually healthy. And what he has to do is first dissociate himself from that. So let, let's set out and say, if I were working with him, what is it you want to achieve? And now let's see how we get the chimp on board. Why is it doing this? And it could be something simple for him. For example, and it's unique for everyone, he might say, if, uh, if he's got friends who jog, for example, then he could ring them and say, right, can we meet and do a jog tonight and regularly jog for the next, every other night, say, um, and his chimp will now get on board and say, I can't let them down. So you're actually using the chimp to get you to go out and meet them because most of our chimps don't like to let other people down. So there's simple methods he could use where he says, that works for me and it gets me to commit because even though I don't want to go now, my chimp's saying, no, it won't let my friends down. But again, if, if that didn't work for him, he has to come back and say, Steve, that's not working. And then we look again and say, let's look at other ideas of how we manage this chimp and how we make it want to go out. And what would be the difference, say, in mentality of a team player and like an individual player, Steve? Again, the rules are quite strict on this, if you think, because when it, you're an individual, you're, you're basically saying, how do I want to run my world? Uh, so therefore, you're in charge, and if I were working with someone to optimise their performance, I'd ask you to set out what it is you want, make sure we're being realistic, and then we, we achieve it in the method that suits you best. Um, so I would facilitate that. However, the rules change totally with a team. You're buying into somebody else's world, and that's the team's world. Therefore, you must now adjust to their rules and regulations and methods of working. And if that's something you don't want... It's like taking a job on. You can't take a job and then rewrite the rules as to what you'll do. You either want the job or you don't. So in team play, we have to accept that we must uh, submit to the team rules, the team ethos, the team values. And if we don't do that, that's when you'll get dissent and, and malfunctioning teams. In regard to a person's ability to achieve, how much can be taught and how much is natural or in need? I think it's a really good point. I think it's a mixture of both, um, and I think some people have natural abilities, and even their chimps have got natural insights into, because the chimp's not bad, into how to read body language, how to um, drive them. The chimp works with motivation, whereas the human works with commitment, and they're very different methods and approaches. Um, but I think everyone is unique. Everyone, the good news is, no, no matter what their genes have given them, everyone can learn emotional skills. So research whichever method you use, and, and, and my uh, model, the chimp model, is not for everybody. It's for those who re resonate with it and relate to it, can use it. If they can't, then I advocate that they find something they can work with. 
you know, because the evidence says whether it's NLP, mindfulness, uh, CBT, all these are really good. Uh, and if you like them, then work with it, because the evidence base is that everyone who works will improve their skill base and will get quality of life. So it's just a case of organizing yourself, having a plan, being able to implement that plan, and then you should see benefits. What's your opinion in regard to depression being experienced in sports people? I mean, that, that's a big topic because, uh, again, depression is sort of an umbrella term for clinicians. So we can get severe depression and we can get mild depression, and, and they can, it can present in very different ways. So, again, if somebody were suspicious that they or somebody they knew had depression, I would strongly advocate they get along to see a doctor who can do a formal assessment because it's not as easy as you think to diagnose at times. Um, but I think with depression in sports people, again, there's different reasons. We call it etiologies, the cause. So some people might be depressed because they're not achieving what they want to achieve, and maybe they're being unrealistic, maybe they're not. Uh, some people might be depressed because they feel that uh, the sport is depriving them of another life. They're, they're committed so much to training and a lifestyle that they maybe don't agree with. So again, when I meet someone who has what appears to be depression in sport, I'd first make sure that it is a true clinical depression and not just a reaction to a situation, uh, which is still valid, but it, it doesn't need medication. And then we find out the reasons behind it. And there may be multiple reasons, not just one reason. And then what I do is with that person, we work on a plan of action to address all of the factors that are causing them to feel low in mood. How can a professional sports person make that change from a full-time position to, like, say, retirement, Steve? That's, again, a very individual thing. And, again, what we try and do with sports people, and I, I do this with sports people, is look at retirement and say, look, focus on what you're doing right up to the day you stop doing it, because that's your job. However, um, we want to look beyond that and say, what are the type of things you're going to meet? What are the type of emotions you're going to meet? Because, again, taking a, a severe example, you would get someone who's right in the line, like the press are following them, the nation's following them, and then suddenly they're nobody. The next day they wake up and say, there's nobody following me now. I'm just along with Joe Public. Uh, and my approach to that is to try and see that it doesn't matter who we are, what we do, we still have uh, value and worth in ourselves, and we still can do things that fulfil us, whatever the level that happens to be, and no matter whether it's in the press or it's it, you know, not in the public domain. And from what I read, snooker legend Ronnie O'Sullivan didn't have a passion for snooker as much as other snooker players. However, he still gets amazing results. Like, How does he do this? Well, again, Ronnie, Ronnie has given me permission, by the way, to speak about him. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't comment on people I work with. Great. But Ronnie it does have a massive passion to enjoy his game. He loves snooker as a game. What he finds difficult at times is uh, getting into these competition things where his chimp tries to hijack him and starts worrying about results and what, how he might feel. And if he does a bad shot, and then he's very um, demanding of himself. And that's the chimp within him. But I've worked with Ronnie now, uh, and it's been a privilege for about four years. And uh, he's done amazing work on his own mind. And, and as it's a skill, some days he may get it wrong, but most of the time now he gets it right. And that means he can perform, enjoy his snooker. And, and it's obvious, it's, it's self-evident that when you're enjoying something, you're more likely to succeed. So he, he's been someone I've loved working with and has had major successes both in terms of the snooker results, but mostly for me and him, I think, in terms of his own happiness. In your own experience, Steve, like, which sports people do you feel you've improved the most and, and why? It's really hard to answer that because I think my successes come on the person themselves because if somebody comes in and says to me, um, I would love to get to um, the final of, of a county championships in something, 
uh, let's say it was a 100-metre sprint, and they say, what I'd like to do is be a county finalist. And, and they work towards that, and I'm part of their team. And they, we get them there, and we, I would celebrate. That would be a massive achievement to me, because it, what I'm really looking at, the way I measure achievement, is that the person has reached the best that they can do. And to me, to see that and see someone happy, knowing they've reached their best and are content with that, that to me is success. So whether that's a gold medal or a finalist in the county or just even achieving something like being happy, uh, that to me is a fantastic goal to achieve and, and that would be for me amazing success. And what's the difference between a professional and an elite athlete? I think professional to me, well I suppose the definition would be that someone who takes it seriously and, and um, acts in a professional manner all of the time, so that's a professional person, whatever they're in. Uh, elite athletes, I guess people are looking at people who are right at the top in their particular field and are leading a life which is based, their finances are based on that, so it's actually a, a world that they are actually living in as a living. Who is the most naturally gifted person you've worked with? Wow, that's a big question. I mean, obviously I've had the privilege of working with people like Vicky Pendleton, who is amazingly gifted, Chris Hoy again, amazingly gifted, um, I'm working with Patrick Harrington at the moment, which is he's gone public about that, and again, amazingly gifted guy. So I think when you look at this, um, there's, I could keep going with a lot of people. Um, it's a privilege to work with anyone, but it depends what you look at as gifts. I guess if I turn it on its head, I look at gifts as being someone who is naturally emotionally skilled, uh, loves to work with other people, gets on with other people, deals with emotions in themselves and others in a really constructive way. To me, these are the superstars, and I'm glad to say most of the people I've worked with uh, are in that category, so it's been great. And what's your opinion in regard to people using drugs to enhance their performance, like, and what do you think are the pressures which actually create us? Yeah, I mean, I'm part of uh, the World Anti-Doping uh, as, as an expert witness to them, and I'm also with the uh, Great Britain UK um, TUE process, so I'm quite sort of involved in these areas, and, and for me, I, I don't want to judge people, but uh, it is difficult when you're working with athletes who are obviously clean, and they come up against people who are cheating, um, and I suppose, it, I, I don't want to excuse anybody, a cheat is a cheat, uh, but sometimes we all do things that we regret, and we look back thinking there may be many factors that get involved, and I think you've got to take each case individually. But there are dishonest people in the world, and um, and I think if they're dishonest, then that should be exposed. Um, so it is difficult because obviously athletes who are running clean find it hard to, to go against people that we we know have cheated and then confess to cheating. A lot of your success has come from working in athletics. Do you believe, Steve, your own career in athletics has been a key factor in the success? Well, I, I took up athletics very late in life. I was just trying to get fit, and at, at about 40, somebody told me about the Masters track and field, so I took it up, and then, and then uh, for fun, took it seriously uh, and did gym work and running, and obviously I've done, done well as a Masters athlete. Uh, and I think, yes, you're right. I, I look at myself, and I, I say, this is the way I look at it. I can't go around giving people advice and not taking it, so I've worked on myself, and... I'm fairly proud to say that, you know, most of the time when I'll go to track and field events and I'm competing, uh, I will employ techniques where I will manage my own emotions and mind in order to better performance. And I can say that I'm pleased to say that generally that, that happens. My chimp very rarely hijacks me. And who is the most hardworking athlete person you've worked with? Well, so many of them. I mean, again, it's hard because when the public look at elite athletes, like in footballers particularly, often get uh, attacked and... 
I'll move to that, to that uh, spot for a moment and say, you know, I had the privilege of working with Stephen Gerrard, who's now obviously left Liverpool. And, you know, a lot of these lads in the Liverpool squad work so hard and they, they take it extremely seriously. And, and often the criticism comes hard and fast. And when you actually know these people and see what they do on a day-to-day basis, um, it's hard to sit back and not say, you know, to the people who are commenting on this, you know, please work with facts and see what they actually do do. You know, and I think more, nearly all the sports people, I would say, that I've worked with who are elite have really driven themselves, whatever their disciplines are. They all work extremely hard because none of them want to fail, but they all take it seriously. So it would be hard to pinpoint one person because uh, the general rule is elite athletes work very hard in order to achieve. And mentality is key to being successful in any sport. Like from your own experience, Steve, which sport do you think requires the strongest mentality? Again, you look at different aspects of mentality. So, for example, um, in something like British Taekwondo I work with, um, UK Taekwondo, with them it's fast and furious. So they've got to have two aspects particularly, an aggressive stance, which means they must be relentless in going for the attack. And they've got to have an enormous amount of focus to react quickly. So these are mental aspects that you look at. Whereas if you look at something like the Tour de France, where people have to be on a bike for three weeks running, then you're looking much more at endurance, determination, endurance, rather than quick responses. So when I look at people, there's an array of emotional skills and and mind skills that they can achieve for sport in order to optimize performance. And my job is to listen carefully to that particular individual, learn about the world that they're in and the nuances of that world, and then help them to better themselves as they want to, depending on which bits of the mind they're trying to operate with and what they're trying to do with them. And how do you deal with multiple sports personalities in a group environment? Um, I always work, I do teamwork, I will do group work where we all look at things together, particularly for approaches and values and plans for the group uh, and how they're going to interact with each other. But I'm always very, very keen to work with individuals. You know, I guess if you've got... um, a team that's going out with a single purpose in mind, each individual must be in a great place in order to contribute to that team. So I always do come back to the individual and say, let's get you as a person in a really good place. Then it doesn't matter where you go, professionally or personally, you are more likely to succeed. And Steve, how would you vary your approach for different players, such as quite introvert versus the more flamboyant, like extroverts? And that's a, a really good point because this is why I'm saying about uniqueness. When I come to the table to meet someone, I don't sit opposite them. I, so to speak, I bring them round the table and we sit together looking at what it is they're trying to do, what their world is like, how they want to approach it. And then we discuss together what's the best way for you. And then it can be trial and error to say, well, how about this technique or this method or this approach? So we're trying to vary lots of things. But the biggest thing for me isn't so much techniques and methods. It's about understanding an insight into yourself to start getting an appreciation of who you are, how you're dealing with your chimp, how you're dealing with your belief systems and emotions, and that, is it the best way, or how could you uniquely do that within the world that you're placing yourself? So I do work very, very much on a unique basis with individuals in what they want to try and achieve. And how do you plan on improving yourself and your athletes year on year? Um, for myself, I, I do, um, every day I would take time out to really reflect. I think the big word is reflection, so that I can try and learn. So I think, I constantly review how I'm doing with people. Uh, and people I work with, I'll ask them for feedback. 
you know, because it is a team. It's not me. It's it's me and them becoming a team. Uh, so I, you always, well, I always look to see, could I have done something better? Could I have done something in a different way? Uh, what else can I learn from this? So I'm constantly uh, thinking things through uh, and learn from errors. So if I make errors, there's no point in getting uh, down about it or beating myself up. But the constructive way to deal with it is to say, right, what can I learn from that? And how will I prevent any errors happening again? Um, that's the way I move forward. And I do that on a regular basis. Every day I'll have moments of reflection during the day where I'm thinking, where am I up to at this point, and is this an effective way of using my mind? But I must emphasise, I don't do that 24-7. It would drive anybody crazy. Uh, I think there's time out. There's just moments when you need to stop and just readjust and think, let me get perspective and reality, and then let's go forward again in, in, a, in a more spontaneous way. And how would you help teams to develop belief and confidence in themselves? Again, realism, I think it, there's no point in having false confidence because if we go out there saying, for example, with a human being, I believe I can win this competition, which may or may not be true, but that's just a belief that's not based on anything other than I'm in a good place to do it. Um, whereas even our chimps will object to that because they're not bad, they're not good, they're just chimps. They would, the chimp will ask for evidence at that point. It will actually say, well, where's the basis for this? And if you can't prove you're going to win it, which you can't, then it will start then undermining this. But we are creating that problem. What, what we have to do is say, I have a good chance. That's reasonable. But what is it I can do? And what you then base it on is you base it on fact. You know, what can we do? What, factually, what's the evidence base that we are in a good position? What's the evidence base we can follow a process? How do we learn to focus? Can we manage that? These are the things I would focus on, not just focus on winning. You focus on the process of winning. Winning is just an outcome. It's a desirable outcome, so I'm not saying we don't dream, but I'm saying when you get into the battle, you actually forget the dream and focus on the process. How would you recommend to work with big-name players who are not performing? Again, for me, I would do what I'm saying is a functional analysis, which means look at every aspect. First, define what they're trying to do, define what works for them, define what they believe is stopping them, uh, rectify that, find out how we're going to manage to get better insight into what's coming up, so you look forward and say, what are the barriers coming up? What are the hurdles? Are there any pitfalls? These are three words I use a lot. Um, and then once you've defined them, plans of action, ready to deal with them. So in other words, you're almost doing like an emotional business plan going forward um, rather than just barging forward and then hitting things and trying to deal with setbacks. You're better to pre-plan, you know, and then if setbacks happen, most of them can be um, foreseen so that you're not caught off guard. And I know a number of athletes, including Pendleton, called you the most important person in their career. Like, how does a statement like this make you feel? Um, very proud and very humbled. Um, it's brilliant. Obviously, I know Vicky really well. She, she's a, a lovely person to work with and great woman. Um, very, very uh, gifted athlete in many aspects. Um, I think it's fantastic because, obviously, I've, I went into the world of medicine initially to help people. And so when you know you've really helped something and made a difference to the life, then I guess most doctors will say that's what we went into medicine for. So for me to have somebody actually say, I believe that what we're doing together uh, is changing my life or making a difference to the quality of my life, then for me that's, that was my outcome objective right at the start, uh, to make people have quality of life and feel happy, successful, self-confident and so on. So, so fantastic feeling when people have achieved what they want. What is the greatest aspect of your job, Steve? I suppose the same point as the last one is to get people to get the optimum performance from themselves 
and and that for most people means having psychological well-being, a great state of mind, being happy, being content, being confident. Uh, that's what I aim for with people, really. Uh, but if they throw in, I'd like a gold medal on top, then okay, I'll take that on board. Uh, but I think it's probably obvious to most people that if you're confident, happy, and in a psychologically good place, the chance of achieving your dreams, whatever they are, start improving rapidly. What is the most difficult aspect of your job? Uh, the difficult bit comes when um, people either don't do the work that's needed and therefore it's frustrating because they come back to me having not done the work. So therefore we're not likely to move forward because I don't have a magic wand. And I think sometimes people come in thinking I've got this magic wand instead of the realism is I can only be as good as they're going to give me which means it's building a skill base on them and reaching optimum performance. That's all we can do as a team. What we can't do is guarantee success on medals in terms of winning competitions. And I think sometimes people have that um, myth that when they meet me, I can turn them into winners. And I can't do that. What I can do is get the best out of them by them working with me, doing the work, and then... Uh, we'll see what the best is, and the best may be seventh or sixth in a final, but that's good enough, or even a semi-final. But for me, that's realism. You know, you can't put talent into people out of the blue. And how could your method of mind management help your listeners to achieve their dreams? I think what I'd be saying to someone who's listening and says, well, how do I go forward with this is, First of all, take it seriously. If you really want to improve, and it doesn't have to be drastic measures, it can be very simple things you do. It's not rocket science. Make your mind up that you're going to look after yourself and start taking a little bit of time, it doesn't have to be a lot, to reflect on what, how you're looking after yourself and your emotions. And one of the things you're doing that are really helpful and one of the things you're doing that are really not helpful. So I'd be going down the route of saying, find a model. It doesn't have to be the chimp model that... Find a model or a therapy or a technique that works for you uh, and then really stick to it and probably get somebody to work with you on it because whenever we work with someone, it's more likely to work than it is if we try something alone. It's quite difficult doing things alone for most of us. There is some humour and use of imagination in the chimp paradox. Like how important is humour and imagination for your work and how could they be beneficial for people with mind management and attaining success or happiness in their lives? I think it's, in my opinion, I think it's really big. I think that when we have a sense of view and we learn to laugh at ourselves and laugh at situations, uh, and obviously some situations you can't laugh at. So, you know, I'm not suggesting for a minute that we should just see life as one big joke or, or it's all fun. But most of the time we can step back and, and get a sense of view about situations and laugh. And I think when we do that, we disempower the chimp within us that starts to get very upset and annoyed or whatever. Uh, so I think keeping a sense of humour is quite crucial um, and getting perspective. I think that's the key things for me, sense of humour and perspective. Um, but we, I still take mental health and emotions very seriously, but there are times where you've got to just lighten up a bit and say, hang on, you know, life's going to go on for most of the time, whatever happens. And there's very few situations that are so serious we should be getting worried about them. And finally, Steve, you've reached the top level in your field of expertise. Like For anyone looking to move to the top level of any discipline, they need an extremely strong work ethic, be motivated, intelligent, and be very passionate about the work they do as well. But what do you think are the most important factors of your success? I think, I mean, people have asked me this a lot, and it's very, very hard to know for yourself, because sometimes you can fool yourself with one of the factors. But I would say um, 
people who know me say I work too hard. I don't think for me I do in the sense that I really enjoy working with people, so I thrive on meeting people. So for me it's more of a, a hobby than work. So I do work con- uh, very consistently, um, and I do work a lot. Uh, but I also love what I do. I'm very passionate about helping people. And as I said earlier in the interview, I get such a thrill out of seeing somebody becoming happy or being successful that that gives me energy again. So I think I've I've been very fortunate in having those two factors in my life which have almost made this uh, successful. Uh, other than that, I think maybe a lot of luck, being in the right place at the right time, um, I don't really know. I guess it's for other people to <laughs> analyse and say what's made me successful. That's great, Steve. Thank you very much. And Thank you very much. You're welcome. And like, if any of our listeners want to find out more about your work or your book, like, how could they do it? Um, well, again, I wrote the book as a sort of like self-help manual or an insight into the mind, and it's just a fun way of looking at it with some serious undertones. And I'd be saying, if read that, get hold of the chimp paradox if people want to try it. Um, I do run courses for people, as I say, through the company, and we've got a website, chimpmanagement.com. Um, we're just about to upgrade the website in about a week. Um, so if people wanted to come along, they could come along and then some of the tutors will take them through the steps of how to get better quality of life for themselves. But there's plenty of models out there. So if, if the readers think, oh, this sounds silly and I don't I like the idea of a chimp or, or looking at the brain, uh, I just want techniques, then I'll be saying to them, go out and get some of the books that are on the market or go to groups that run these kind of therapies uh, and see one of them will resonate with you because you know, people deserve to look after themselves and it's just sad to see so many people not getting the best out of themselves. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, uh, Steve. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. to the health zone check out and like our facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash the health zone show if you would like to listen to the rest of the interview with dr steve peters you can listen to it on www.mixcloud.com forward slash the health zone and that will be actually up later on today as well in studio today we're talking with the register of exercise professionals the health and wellness manager in leisure world and former fitness advisor to the munster rugby senior and development squads mark mcmanus good morning mark morning Michal. how are you doing this morning i'm great thanks that's great so mark like there seems to be more top class athletes being produced in the rugby field now more than the soccer field why is that or my own personal view of that is that if you actually look at it, statistics might not show that that you know soccer has a much larger pool of players probably taking part. So for Irish players to shine through is probably more difficult, especially in years gone by. Lots of players would have been picked up by UK clubs and had an opportunity to play at high level. And that's much harder now with the UK clubs bringing in players from all over the world. So maybe we don't see as many Irish players playing at the top level as we did in the past, and certainly would give the impression with the high profile of many rugby players that they are performing to a, a higher level but having said that I think that if you look at the makeup of the sports in Ireland you know for, uh, the most popular ones being GA, rugby, soccer and basketball you can see that um, there's competition for athletes and players who are interested in 
who are committed to train and try and achieve a high level. And I, I think professionalism of rugby has helped. It's allowed young people to get taken in at a, an early stage and given structured and progressive programmes to develop them both on skill and physical preparation to a high level. And so I suppose the professionalisation of rugby has certainly helped um, Irish rugby players develop into top-class players who are recognised worldwide. Great, Mark. And like, what have been the biggest changes you've seen in training practices since you've been involved in sport? Or? Well, I think the biggest change maybe over the last 15 or 20 years in terms of physical preparation in sports certainly has been the advancement and development of both the knowledge of how to develop and prepare players for high-level performance, um, but also there's a much larger pool of experts and and coaches who understand how to develop players better out there. So that's certainly been the biggest change that players now have access to much uh, better information and people who have that experience as well because you know um, a lot of coaches and um, people involved in physical preparation now have good 10-15 years experience uh, and have refined uh, their knowledge and their skills to develop players better so I think that's the biggest change is there's a much greater awareness, knowledge and experience out there to assist players and then off the back of that you you then have much more individualisation and specialisation in programmes for the actual players so I don't think there's been any new real developments in the way to train Um, I think it's more the application of the training practices and modes and and a better understanding of other aspects of physical development and preparation for sport Uh, and that's everything from lifestyle you know psychology and physical preparation and skill development they all they all have a part to play but there's just a much greater understanding and awareness uh, and professionalization of it really and Mark, like, what do you think are the defining success factors at the top level for both uh, players and managers? That's very complex and it really does come down to individualisation depending on the type of coach, the sport they're involved in and same with players, you know, the type of player, you know, their, their, their age profile, their category, the level they're playing at, all these factors all influence what's going to be important. Um, there are a few common factors and I, and I, I really do think that um, if you look at successful players, certainly, uh, or athletes, there's there's common traits there. You know, they're, they're traditionally um, very well organised. There's always exceptions uh, to the rule, but typically they're very well organised. They're very well focused and, and driven and motivated themselves. Uh, they don't generally have to be motivated externally. They've got this inbuilt intrinsic motivation that makes them want to drive uh, on and and they always seek out you know and always challenge themselves the best information the best advice to to push themselves and you know a lot of successful athletes you know have difficulties they they may feel some athletes handle stress well others don't other athletes train very well physically and others don't and others um, are very relaxed on the field and others others find that a difficult aspect and I suppose the successful players overcome those the successful players can embrace those and they work hard at addressing those weaknesses or the challenges they find and uh, they have this, that's the successful trait in a top level player in that they, they are focused and they're willing to accept where, what the challenges they have individually and, and more importantly they understand it they learn how to address it and they learn what they need to do themselves to to really reduce that impact that that challenge that they personally have has on them and it's, it's about individualising in their own personal development and and most importantly I think 
is taking a, a career view of their performance and not look to the short term and see what what can they do in the next six months and next year that they should look ahead to three or four years down the line and where do they want to be and, and put a structured plan in place and, and stay focused and work toward that and be patient I suppose is one of the things you know In regards to the resistance training then Mark like what do you believe is the right age or frequency that young people should start doing it or There's it's a difficult one I mean the, the primary when you talk about resistance training people can the first thing people should do is learn how to move properly and once they learn how to move properly then you can start to add resistance and load uh, in those movements and that's where you start to get real physical development is when you add resistance and load but uh, quite often we, we see people adding resistance and load before they can actually move properly or control the movement properly and that tends to either limit uh, their development uh, or worst case scenario actually cause an injury so the first thing would be to get proper advice and coaching and learn how to move properly not to be in such a rush to to load resistance uh, onto the movement until you can move properly and what age is the correct age for that then it really comes down to the maturity of the athletes uh, Everyone matures and develops physically at different ages. You can see a 12-year-old who looks more like a 16 or 17-year-old and you can see a 16 or 17-year-old who looks more like a 12-year-old. So it really comes down to the physical maturity of the athletes. If um, if they're ready to uh, add resistance and load, I think the measure should be that they're physically developed to do that, but more importantly, that they're, they're capable of carrying out the movement properly and safely first. And once you can do that, then... I mean, you can start to do resistance training for the age of 12, 13, 14. And when I say that, that's moving properly. And as that movement progresses, then you can start to add resistance progressively over, a, you know, a period of years, uh, increase the, the load as you go, you know. And like, what would be your suggestions, say, in terms of nutrition and diet in hand players' performance? Or? Nutrition and diet um, is an essential part of a, an overall lifestyle Um and there's many other components that come into that, you know, hydration, sleep, stress, um, emotional control. All of these things have to be controlled and monitored. And nutrition is a very large part of that. And uh, people often say, you know, should I have more carbohydrates? Should I eat more protein? Should I eat more fats? And again, it comes back to that individualization. I mean, the f- most important thing is that they get appropriate professional advice and a, a an appropriately trained and qualified dietitian or sports nutritionist is the most um, qualified and a uh, person that they should seek uh, information and advice from rather than someone who you know goes to the gym or another athlete because everybody is very individual and unless that other person is doing has the exact same lifestyle as you is doing the exact same training as you and has their body has the exact same response to that training then your nutritional requirements will be very different from that other person so taking advice from other people while it might give you an idea of maybe areas that you could develop and work on yourself I certainly wouldn't be taking advice but What's the simple things I would say to an athlete looking to tweak their diet and nutrition is the first steps are really to make sure that the f- as much as possible the food they are eating is as nutritious as possible and generally speaking most people know what is nutritious food and what is not as nutritious uh, you know and we're really talking about staying away from the uh, processed uh, high calorie low nutrient quality food and we're looking for that 
healthier um, nutrient dense food and, and that's our natural foods you know your your meats your veggies your fruits etc so um Nutritious food is most important, I think, to start with and, and get advice from a, a properly qualified and experienced sports nutritionist or dietitian. Great, Mark. Thanks. And like as you know, supplements such as protein and weight gainer and even creatine have become very popular over the last number of years. And so what's your opinion on this and what age do you think young people and young athletes should actually start taking supplements? The age of taking supplements is quite easy and straightforward. I would argue that really it would be the exception for anyone under the age of 18, 19, 20 to really require any supplementation to their normal uh, daily intake of nutrition. The only reason that you might consider taking supplementation at a younger age is if you've been recommended to do so by a dietitian or sports nutritionist. Um, Outside of that, really most of your nutritional needs should be met by your daily uh, intake that you're you're having and, and if you have that wide-ranging diet and, and and you adjust the volumes to suit your training then you should be able to get enough nutrition from your diet having said that i know that there's a lot of marketing out there i know that there's a lot of um kind of pressure from sometimes from coaches other athletes and other people you train with and you see it every day in the paper and shops and the temptation is there to try to take that shortcut and think if I take this supplement that will fast track me and the reality is it's just an add-on and quite often then you could be you could be wasting your money if you don't if you're not training hard enough one of the things I see people doing all the time is they'd be taking supplementation and when you actually talk to them and ask them what their training is they're not actually even training at a high enough intensity or regularly enough to actually warrant needing that extra uh, supplementation so therefore you know supplement by definition means in addition to so supplement is meant to be in addition to your daily nutrition where you actually need um, an additional support and help and really to require that, you, you would have to be uh, training at quite a high level. And I mean for good durations, regularly each week and at quite a high level. So uh, supplementation is something to be added on. Again, it should be taken under guidance from an experienced uh, coach or nutritionist and dietitian. And Mark, like if a player say had a mental health issue, what do you think would be the best thing for both the player and the manager to do in that situation? Um, Mental health issues are very complex again and there's no one, uh, I suppose, answer to it. But if you're talking about a relationship between the coach, athletes, etc., then I think that the most important thing is for the athlete to make the coach aware of that. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you mean that the athlete is the one who's maybe feeling the, the mental health issue. Then the coach is usually somebody that can be confided in and maybe if the coach is... You know, quite command orientated and is not someone that the player feels comfortable approaching the player should then you know look to usually there's someone within the support staff an assistant coach or uh, a masseur or somebody else uh, working within the coaching structure and support team who they can talk to and explain it especially if some of the stress and mental health issues are coming from being involved in a sport or team maybe the player's not being selected and they're feeling you know a lack of self-confidence as a result or they're feeling some mental health issues as a result of that then the the key is to approach the coach and and discuss it and and be open about it and then I mean and seek professional help there's plenty of professional help out there and that is but I mean if it is related to sports performance then confiding in the coach and talking to the coach or someone else within the support team who may be able to give some um, help and advice and, and allay some of those fears would be extremely helpful but from a coach's side of 
point of view if you're involved in coaching as well I think it's very important that coaches are aware of the significant impact that their decisions as a coach can possibly have on a player's mental health as well and that involves someone not getting selected uh, someone being selected and being put in a position of having to take maybe say a a high pressure penalty or a player who's on the field with who has high expectation lumped on them as being the the star player or is an expectation of uh, making a significant contribution during the game coaches should have an awareness of that impact that they can have on the mental health of the player and I suppose seek to to check and make sure that the player is comfortable with that and can actually handle it and make the player aware that if they're not comfortable that it is okay for them to come to the coach and, and um, make the coach aware of those issues and and quite often the coach if they communicate properly with the player uh, and explain clearly maybe why those decisions were made, why a player wasn't selected to start, why a player was substituted um, why the coach is all of a sudden asking this player to play such a lead role within the team um, then that can that can help avoid uh, mental health issues. And just finally, Mark, we're just nearly out of time. But I guess, well, what's the best uh, health and fitness advice you could give to our listeners? Um, health and fitness advice. I mean, I, I always look at it as a continuum. So, I mean, you start with uh, being healthy first. Uh, and then progressing into developing fitness and then developing into performance if you're that way inclined to compete or to take part in sports. So I think if you don't have that healthy lifestyle where you've got that, you know, adequate sleep, good nutrition, you've got your stress and emotional uh, control uh, under control, um, then I think, and, and being physically active regularly and just moving well, then if you're not healthy, if you push to be fit, you know, and do regular training, at some point you'll either limit your your fitness development or you'll risk, um, you know, getting getting unwell, maybe through getting a flu or a cold, the body uh, being kind of run down and under pressure uh, because you don't have that healthy lifestyle to support the increased physical activity. Uh, and then certainly for performance, unless you've developed that healthy base and then uh, built on that with some reasonable fitness level then if you start pushing to perform then again the body will likely you know break down you know common cold uh, flus maybe niggles in the knees injuries shoulders back old old little injuries that were sitting in the background once you start to push flare up and you you start to get recurrent uh, problems with it so i think it's a continuum uh, focus on being healthy first in the short term uh, adopt those healthy um, lifestyle patterns you know plenty of sleep hydration and good nutrition then get exercising regularly and that will develop your fitness uh, and and have a good mix of fitness you know cardio fitness to develop the heart and lungs and and cardiovascular system and then your resistance training as well do some uh, light resistance training and develop that and and then if you want to train more regularly and take part in some low level competition then develop that steadily and take take a long term approach take take a 12 month or a two-year approach to where you are just now to where you want to be. Thanks so much for coming in today for chatting with us and uh, really enjoyed it. No problem, you're welcome. Thank you, Mark. So, uh, well, that was uh, Mark there from Leisure World. These don't go away because up next we're talking with the legendary Sonia O'Sullivan who will be telling us all about the low and high points in her career. She also reveals why she appreciates her world championship wins more now than back then. She also mentions where she loves to go for a run in Cork. Let's listen to the one and only George Isra with Budapest. Miles in Budapest. 
dress my my hidden treasure chest golden grand piano my beauty focus eou to the health zone check out and like our facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash the health zone show a podcast of this week's show will be uploaded later on today last week i was chatting with sonia sullivan and here's the clip from the interview the full interview will be uploaded on our podcast later on on www.mixcloud.com forward slash the health zone so today i'm talking with ireland's most successful distance runner the legendary sonia sullivan Good morning, Sonia. Good morning. How are you? Great. So tell me, Sonia, you're regarded as one of Ireland's most successful sports people. Like, what do you think are the main reasons for your success? Oh, gosh. Um, I suppose um, I suppose the main thing, really, is just, I suppose, enjoying what I do and then and working hard would be, I suppose, they would be the biggest factors, really. Um, and then, I suppose, having lots of opportunities down through the years to go out there and to to be in the right races and you know I suppose to be in races where I have a chance of winning and then I suppose as soon as you get a taste of winning then you you want it even more so you work even harder I think to to try and be better so I suppose it's just all that kind of I suppose loving what you do and then being continually motivated to do better and you know, like in every athlete's career, Sonia, like there's always low points and there's high points. Right? So, like, what do you think was your lowest point, and like, how did you deal with that low point? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I always look back on my career and I see it. It was a bit of a roller coaster ride, really. There was a few ups and downs throughout it, but I suppose the lowest one definitely would have been um, the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996, and. I was the the world champion the year before, and then all of a sudden, you know, I was nowhere near able to, I suppose, produce the results that I expected and, you know, that everybody else expected. Um, so it took a little while, you know, to get over that and to kind of realize that, listen, there's nothing you can do about that now. You've just got to put it aside and start all over again. And um, I think that was, I suppose, the ability to you know, forget about everything that I had done before and really to just, I suppose, draw a line in the sand and say, okay, this is, if you want to, you know, get back to anywhere near the levels you were before, you've got to start all over again. And I was lucky, really, in a way that I I changed coaches at the time and I kind of approached, um, I suppose, similar things, but was in a different way. And um, so then things were a little bit different, so I wasn't doing the same things all over again. I wasn't able to compare training sessions to what I used to do before because everything was new, and so the motivation was, was different. And, um, you know, I suppose when you when you see improvement each week, then, you know, it gets you a bit excited and you just want to get out there and to test yourself. And, you know, it was like, what was your highest point, say, in your career, Sonia? Um, oh, well, like, there was a few highs, you know, I mean... Yeah, a lot of them, actually. I suppose early on, like in 1995, winning the World Championship, and then in 90, even in 1994, um, I broke, like, a whole load of Irish records. 
think something like five in two weeks one time. Wow. Um, you know, it just seemed like, you know, nothing could go wrong and every race was kind of better than the last one. Um, and then I suppose then after the low of Atlanta, to be able to come back and win the World Cross Country in 1998, uh, the long race and the short race in the same weekend, and then eventually the third attempt, um, the Olympics in 2000 here in Sydney, um, you know, to be able to go out there and to, I suppose going into that, I really just wanted to run well. I just wanted to get a good result and, you know, to I put in a lot of hard work and I never really thought about kind of winning medals or, you know, being the best. I just wanted to get the best out of myself and, um, you know, I suppose to come away with a medal of any colour at that stage after, you know, trying two year, two Olympics previous to that. You know, I was really grateful for that and, uh, you know, felt like, you know, I suppose the silver that night, it was it was nearly as good as gold and it was absolutely better than, you know, coming away with nothing. Yeah, f- fantastic. And you, I know you, like you said in your interview recently on Marathon Talks, Sonia, that when you look back now at your World Championship wins that you appreciate appreciate them more now than back then like but like, why do you say that um i think you know when you're i suppose when you're you know at the best in your career you're you're always thinking about what's next and it's you know it's like being a little kid you know you're just so excited about everything that you're achieving that you just you want to you continually want to know what's coming next you know and you don't want to stop and kind of um i suppose enjoy it because you feel like you lose the momentum then. So I think once you're on a bit of a roll and races are going well, you just want to keep going. And, you know, it's it's not just about winning championships, but I think also pushing yourself and trying to see how fast that you can go. So, you know, whenever these opportunities arise, you want to be ready for them. So I think I was always somebody who, you know, I didn't want to stop until, until I could run no more for the season. So I would run myself out and just keep running you know, probably every second day a lot of the time, just to keep seeing, you know, how much faster I could run, how many more races I could win. And I thought it was a big buzz that you get going around from different cities all over Europe and racing every second night. And, you know, it was really, you know, a fun time and I really enjoyed it. Um, So never really wanted to stop because I knew as soon as I stopped in the season that, you know, it would be very hard to get going again. And I know, like, during that talk as well, that you mentioned that, like, the first feeling that you got, you know, when you won something was more of a sense of relief rather than jubilation. Like, but, like, how come that happened? Or? Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would feel like that, you know, mm. because what happens is that you you put in a lot of hard work and you train really hard and you know, you know, what results you should get, but that doesn't guarantee that you will get them. So when you do actually achieve the results that you believe that, you know, you deserve or that you've earned because of the hard work that you put in, then it's it's just a sense of relief that you're actually able to go out there and do it, even though, you know, beforehand everybody else kind of thinks there's no doubt you're going to win this race. But I know when I stand on the start line that there's 14 other girls there and they've all trained hard as well. And, you know, if I make one little slip up here, there'd be people there ready, ready to kind of take advantage of that so everything has to really go perfect um 
you know, in the in, especially in those championship races that only come round every few years. And I can imagine you're under like a lot of pressure like around that period of time in your life, Sonia. But like, how did you manage the pressure back then? Um, well, I think it was it was probably a lot easier for me back then. Um, I um, I I spent quite a lot of time in Teddington, um, just outside London, training, and so I wouldn't have been aware of a lot of the pressure and the expectation of people in Ireland. Of course, you know, I, I knew, you know, that people did expect me to do well, but I, I wasn't kind of dealing with it every day. Um, I was able to kind of get on with what I needed to do. And then when you go to the championship, you're kind of hidden away from everybody anyway because you just spend time, you know, in, in the village or the hotel and just between there and the track. And you don't really communicate a lot with people in that time, you just kind of um, go through your own little routine and try and you just try and visualize things the way you want them to work out. And and then when you're prepara- preparing for the race, you just do all the very same preparations that you would have done for races that you ran before, and everything worked out well. And even similar preparation that you do for training sessions, you know, every week of the year. What would you think? Say is the how important the right attitude and the right set of beliefs are in regards, say, to running and, and even winning races as well, Sonia? Yeah, I mean, you, you have to have, like, you know, a very positive mindset, I think, because, you know, everything is doesn't go perfectly and there's definitely little hiccups and little things along the way that can throw you a little bit. And so I think you have to be really strong and you have to be able to block out things that could distract you, you know, I mean, I suppose, I don't know, things with your friends or your family or, you know, things that could kind of interfere with just thinking about what you're doing um, if you allow yourself to get distracted. And, you know, I think I often, you know, I have, you might get a message or an email or something that, you know, give you something to think about that you really didn't want to be bothered about. Um, but I used to always be able to, as soon as I went to the race hotel, just be able to block it all out and forget about it totally because I would be so focused on, you know, the reason I was there. And I suppose just from the minute you arrive in the city of a race that you're going to run, you start the countdown to the actual race. And, you know, you're kind of filling every hour and every minute of the day has got a specific, I suppose, it's just the routine that you follow. And one thing leads to another and, you know, time goes by and before you know it, you're at the track and ready to race. Was there any times that, say, you felt that you didn't have the right attitude, say, in terms of... Um, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of times, absolutely, yeah. And and the, the the worst thing was that I would know. And, you know, there was not a whole lot you could do about it because you can't just kind of put your hand up and say, oh, no, I'm not right, I can't run tonight. Because, you know, there there is an expectation and... You know, as much as you know deep down that, you know, it's not going to be easy tonight and there's a chance that this is definitely not going to work out, I think you still have to line up and you still have to give it a go because, you know, there's a slight chance that maybe your mind is playing games with you. And um, But I'd say more often than not, when when I would know that things were not going to be right, then they wouldn't be right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, often that would be if there was, you know, if you were had an injury or you weren't feeling well, um, or maybe you didn't have a good track session the week before. 
So, you know, all these things have to kind of line up and they have to be going in the right direction so that when you line up for a race that you're very confident and ready to go out there and do the best you can. Many people would regard you as a sporting hero and deservedly so, but who is your own sporting hero and, and why? There'd be different people down through the years, but, um, I mean, the people who I would have looked up to when I was growing up would be, you know, people like Marcus O'Sullivan and Frank O'Mara, who, you know, they were Irish athletes who were winning world indoor championships back in the 80s, and that was when I was kind of first becoming interested in athletics and, you know, starting to be competitive myself, so... You know, I definitely looked up to them, and then I was really lucky to spend time with them, you know, the first few Irish teams that I was on. So they were there to kind of, I suppose, show me that they were just normal, and, you know, they just trained and did things just the same way that I did. So it made it easier for me then to believe that if they can go out there and win world championships, why can't I? Many sports people say who transition from competing to retirement and can find the process extremely difficult. And I suppose, like, how did you find this process on yourself and did you use any tools to specifically help you to deal with this major change in your own um, life? Not, no, no. I mean, there, there's, I think there's a lot more um, tools and people around to help people these days and give them guidance, you know, when they, when they do eventually retire. I mean, I think for me, I think it, it took quite a few years for me to kind of accept it and to be able to move on because for such a long time, that's all you know is, you know, training in the morning, training in the evening and resting in the middle of the day. Um, that all of a sudden when that is not, you know, the most important thing in your life, um, but it's still a part of your life, I think to be able to kind of weigh it up and put it in perspective, you know, that... You know, this now is just kind of a small part of your life. And, you know, just because you retired from international athletics and from competing um, doesn't mean that you have to retire from, you know, going out and enjoying a run every day. So it took me a good few years to actually enjoy running at the level that I was at, you know, because I was always trying to, I suppose, you're always trying to kind of do get a purpose to the actual running that you're doing and um, there definitely came a time when I was training a lot harder than I was racing and I think that was when I realised that you know what I was putting in I wasn't getting the results weren't coming out the other end so I definitely had to question what I was doing then and to kind of gradually transition over into kind of so spending more time with my family and looking after the kids a bit more and you know they became a lot more of a priority and all of a sudden the running just kind of became a bit of a hobby for me and you know that's what it is now I really enjoy running and I do everything I can you know not to get injured because you know a day without running isn't the isn't the most fun day yeah brilliant the use of drugs in sport is a huge talking point especially in athletics Sonia what do you make of the recent Alberto Salazar allegations and the Nike Oregon project um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of, I suppose, advances in the technology and knowledge that people have these days that they're always trying to kind of get an extra edge on everybody else. And, you know, I think the, the Nike Oregon, Oregon project was set up, you know, very, I think a lot of science behind it and 
they definitely wanted to, you know, do everything that they possibly could to get the best possible results out of athletes. And, you know, I mean, from what they say, you know, they do everything. They don't do anything illegal. And, um, you know, you have to, I suppose, believe that um, until proven otherwise. Um, but, you know, I think they definitely have a lot of, um, I suppose, they they have a lot of support um, behind them to support the athletes. So, you know, I think as much as when I was training hard as an athlete, the training was the most important thing and the fitness. I think now the recovery um, is equally as important and I think people have kind of figured that out and, you know, it's it's a bit more scientific definitely than when I was out training and we did use a bit of science but I don't think um, we kind of interpret it as, as well as people do these days and you know, do everything possible to, to recover from the hard session so that you're ready to go back out there and train hard again, you know, I suppose either the next day or two days later. Do you think the drug-enhancing culture has improved or deteriorated over the last number of years, Sonia? Um, well, it's a, it's a bit of a minefield out there because it's hard to know. I mean, you know, the, um, the, the what do you call them, the testing and everything is always improving, but... You know, as much as it's improving, there's still people getting caught for drugs every year. So it just seems, I mean, people always say that the, the cheats are always one step ahead of the testers. Um, the testers believe that they're getting one step closer. So maybe they were two steps ahead before and now they're only one step ahead. But um, I don't know. I think it's it's one of those things, you know, you're either an honest person or you're not. And you know if you're if you're an honest person then i think you know your your conscience wouldn't allow you to cheat because you wouldn't believe that the the results that you're getting are your own and you know it'd be very fabricated and it'd be hard to live with yourself if you did that so you know i think you have to believe in some of the athletes that they're doing everything you know i suppose they're doing everything cleanly um of course, everybody has to take different. They take different supplements for recovery, and um, I suppose it depends on how close to the line people are willing to go and the risks that they're willing to take, where they might get caught. Do you think there was any point of time which you think that the drug was used in sport at its worst? Or, um, well, I think it definitely goes through waves. Sometimes it's really bad. There's been years where, you know, blatantly obvious. Um, cheating, I think, in in distance running, and then there's other years where it's more obvious in sprinting. So, you know, it seems now that some people do seem to go on forever. Brilliant. There has always and always will be continuous improvements in training methods, Sonia. It was like from when you began your career to when you finished your career, like what was the biggest change or improvements in training methods for you? For me, I think the biggest changes was me understanding training and being able to interpret it for how how I was able to cope with different training levels and um, like I said before I think the recovery and the understanding of recovery is greater than the actual training because everybody thinks that they have to go out and train really hard and you know continually train hard day after day but it's been proven you know more and more every year 
the ability to recover between training sessions and between races is what allows the body to get out there and to perform better than constantly, you know, banging your head against the wall and training really hard. And, you know, I definitely would have been of the mindset to go out there and train hard most days. Um, very little time I would kind of be able to take a rest. I had very few days off um, because I suppose I didn't know what to do with myself on a day off. You just felt you were missing something if you took a day off. Um, and, you know, it, you find you're going around trying to justify why you're taking a day off. Whereas nowadays, I think people, they take days off, but they do other things. Like they may go do, you know, recovery sessions in the pool or on the bike. And Whereas we just did stuff like that when we were injured and didn't really kind of, I suppose, use other, other methods of training as recovery methods and, you know, to, I suppose, keep your mind at peace, but allow your body to recover. And like Sonia, like what what do you think was the biggest obstacle for you that you had to overcome in your own career? Um, I suppose that yeah, the biggest thing for me would have been kind of listening to my coaches and like having total faith in what they were telling me because I definitely was somebody who I I just felt I had to run a lot, and it was very hard for me to kind of hold back and to you know, trust that I didn't need to run as much as I thought I needed to run. What do you think are the reasons for like the, the declining performances in athletes in Western society, Sonia? A lot of stuff is from a, from a very young age. They're eating a lot more processed foods. Um, there's less kids walking to school every day. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's just too many conveniences around the place. And I think, you know, just the whole internet era I think that preoccupies so many people's minds for such a huge amount of time in the day that they're spending a lot more time sitting down than ever before I don't think there's much manual work going on around the place um, and yeah I mean I think it's just all the the conveniences and all the kind of things that stop people from going out and kind of finding things to do um, instead they can just do everything from the kitchen table without going anywhere. Sonia, like depression in sport is a talking point at the moment and like what are your own viewpoints on that? I suppose the high level I suppose when athletes they reach such highs in their lives that um you know, when you do have a low it would be very easy to fall into a depressive depressive kind of state. Um and you know, I, I think athletes, I suppose, you have to be able to balance yourself a little bit more. And they do tend to have a lot of highs and lows. And it's to kind of find the balance in the middle um, so that when you have a low, that you can pull yourself out of it. And maybe not necessarily up to the highs that you know, but something that will kind of get you going on an even keel and a kind of a steady life balance. And so I think... Um, you know, one way I suppose to address that is for athletes to have a bit more of a balanced lifestyle rather than, you know, everything is all about the sport, that you need to have other things in your life as well. And whether that's, you know, athletes who study, um, students, um, or whether they have a, a job or a part-time job, um, or even if you have a family that you have to look after, then I think it helps you to have 
a bit more of a balanced lifestyle so that when you do have those highs and lows that you can put them into perspective a lot easier than if you don't have anything else in your life. Do you think, Sonia, that enough is being done say, to help people, say, if they experience this and, and to even to highlight the problem as well, like in the sporting side of things? I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I know it's definitely being talked about a lot more now, which obviously will help a lot. Um, and it probably when people talk about how they feel and issues that they have, um, particularly sports people who I suppose would be out there as role models for not just other sports people, but for a lot of, you know, other people who who enjoy watching sports and they have these sports heroes. Um, I think it just kind of brings the reality of how, you know, I suppose the, these people that we all look up to, like top sports people, that, you know, they are normal as well and they have ups and downs in their lives. And um, I suppose... It, it just kind of shows you that everybody is human and, you know, everybody doesn't go out there and everything work out perfectly for them every day. But um, you just have to kind of, I suppose everybody has to have somebody who they can talk to and somebody who understands them and who can help them if they do have these things because, you know, when you're out there as a top athlete, you do feel a responsibility that you have to be seen as the kind of superhero all the time and, you know, you can't have bad days or you can't be seen to be unhappy um whereas you know there's nobody in the world goes around happy 24 hours a day every day of the year um so i suppose in a way maybe athletes sometimes you need to kind of um express that a little bit more rather than always be showing the positive and that everything is great and no problems here until you know things really kind of explode or implode and things go wrong. Running is quite a lonely sport as well, like, isn't it? It is, but then running is also one of those kind of very much a antidepressant. Um, you hear so many mm. people talk about it these days that, you know, um, you know, running is the kind of new thing that gets everybody out there thinking positive and feeling good about themselves. And like I know myself, you know, if you have any days where you're kind of having doubts about going for a run and you eventually convince yourself to get out there and go for a run and you come back home and you kind of think why why was I talking myself out of that because you know you feel those days I think you feel much better mm. uh, when you eventually do get out and run and you kind of question yourself why did I think why would you possibly think that you shouldn't go for a run exactly <laughs> it's yeah. the best thing for you yeah it's 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 like a kind of a magic thing once you go out there and give yourself a couple of minutes to get into the rhythm and the enjoyment of the running and probably get away from things that are bothering you or the doubts and fears and any negative thoughts you might have in your mind and you just get out there and you look around and you warm up and you just enjoy you know being out there by yourself with your own thoughts and I think you know all your anything I suppose that you're not happy about in your life, it goes away. And uh, even if it's just for that one hour of the day where you go out there and you feel fantastic, at least people have that to look forward to every day. They say that the hardest thing is thinking about it, isn't it? 
It is. <laughs> That's what they say. And if you have to get up really early in the morning to go for a run, the hardest thing is those first two steps out of the bed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so once you put your shoes on and go out the door, then it's no problem. On a side note, Sonia, like, who was your greatest competitor or rival like, when you were running? Um, I had a few different ones down through the year. I mean, we definitely... I think um, Gabriela Zabo from Romania had quite a good few runs with her. And then before that, uh, Yvonne Murray from Scotland. Um, I always felt that, you know, when I had to run against people who were really good and tough competitors, that I always ran better, you know. So I would much rather a hard race than a than an easy race. Um, because the hard races, you you just kind of focused a bit more on it and you made sure that you were ready for it and that you, you know, you, you tried not to make any mistakes and have a real good plan before you went into the race. What advice would you give to, say, young athletes who dream of achieving what you've achieved, Sonia? Yeah, I think the, the, the most important thing is that you enjoy what you're doing. And, you know, you say enjoy it, and people say, how can you enjoy it? It's so hard. <laughs> but it's a different kind of enjoyment. You know, you actually get a, such a huge satisfaction when you go and do a, a long run or a hard training session. Um, it might be hard, it might be tough while you're out there doing it and particularly, you know, if it's cold and wind and winter time, you know, it's you just have to think about the good days when the sun is shining and, you know, it's summertime and you're getting ready for track races and you're flying around the place. Um a lot of the hard work is in the winter time, it's a lot of the time that nobody knows. Um that is where the hard work goes on. I mean, I know I used to run a lot of races and people would say to me, you're training really hard. And I'd say, no, not training at all. <laughs> I'm just running the races. I did the training months ago. And uh, so you really do have to work hard, I think, uh, well in advance of the track season. And you have to be prepared to go out there and to, you know, take it easy between the races so that you're recovered and ready for the next race. Just finally, tell me, Sonia, like, where's your favourite place to go for a run in Cork? In Cork, um, let me see, it's changed over the years. <laughs> I think um, at the moment, um, I've, I have a few places in Cork I like now, but I do, I do, I really like to go for a run around Fota Island, which Fabulous. is kind of um, halfway between Cove and Cork. And uh, it's just a lovely spot. And they, they've really developed the trails in there over the past few years. And uh, yeah, great place to run. Great, Sonia. Thanks so much. Look, thanks very much for taking the call today and chatting with us. Really appreciate it. And you're w- welcome. No uh, problem. Uh, when are you back in Cork again? I'll be back in September. Oh, great! So yeah, be back I'll for, be back for, back for the unveiling of the statue in Cork. Oh, fantastic! I, I might pop yeah. down there myself as well. Yeah, you might come and see that. But I'll be will, there yeah. for a while anyway. Definitely. After yeah. it. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thanks a million, Sonia. Okay. Cheers. No Bye now. Thanks for listening to another show of the Hellstone. Tune in next week for more exciting and interesting topics and guests in the areas of spirituality, relationships, finance, creativity, health, career and much, much more. In the meantime, check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash the Hellstone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Hellstone or log on to our website www.thehealthzoneshow.com. If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Hellstone Show delivered to your inbox every week, and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. 
Also, if you have any feedback on the show, or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com. Well, until next week, have a fantastic, healthy, and happy week.